0: Anthony Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. And this is episode 98, News Stories. It's been a while since I've dedicated a show to news stories, so it's about time. Before we start, though, I'd like to thank the following people for following the show on Twitter, Jessica and Jordy Atheist. I'd also like to thank Crocoduck once again for showing his support on Twitter, also, I'd like to thank Brian Burns for reaching out via the show's Facebook page. He let me know how much he likes the show and he shared a news story, which I, in turn, will share with you shortly. Um, I think that's it for this week's shoutouts. Actually, before I move on to the news, I believe I have to make a correction of sorts. I mentioned last week how I've been rereading the Sumerian Epic of Gilgamesh. Well, I've finished it. And in retrospect, I now realize I may have made a couple of mistakes when discussing Mesopotamian mythology a couple of episodes back. During the Bill Nye Ken Ham episode, I believe. I believe that I wrongly insinuated that the Epic of Gilgamesh makes mention of the world being created in seven days. Although that is a part of Sumerian mythology, it's mentioned in the creation story text known as the Enuma Elish, or Elish. Um, and not the Epic of Gilgamesh. I got something else wrong, but actually corrected myself later in the same episode. I mentioned that the Epic of Gilgamesh mentions a tree of life, but I later said I believed it was a plant in the Sumerian Epic, which it is. Gilgamesh finds a plant which is said to grant immortality, but before he can make use of it, a serpent similar to the uh, Genesis story foils things. The reason why I'm going on about the Epic of Gilgamesh is obviously because of the similarities it bears to the later Genesis story in the Judeo Christian Bible. The similarities are the most striking in the last tablet of the epic, which discusses the flood narrative. Gilgamesh, seeking the secret of eternal life, seeks out an old man by the name of Utnapishtim. The old man tells Gilgamesh of the great flood and how he, Utnapishtim, like Noah in the Genesis account, is instructed to build a boat according to certain dimensions and to take his family and all the quote-unquote beasts of the field aboard with him. As in the book of Genesis, the boat settles atop a mountain and the protagonist releases birds in an attempt to ascertain if the waters have receded enough to reveal dry land yet. Similar to the Genesis account, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, the flood is a punishment from God or the gods in the Mesopotamian version. It's primarily the god Enlil who is responsible for the flood. While other gods are sympathetic to man and even retreat to the heavens in fear of the flood, some weeping, the goddess Ishtar is said to cry out like a woman in childbirth, lamenting the drowning of mankind in the seas like so many fish. Another thing that kind of reminded me of the Genesis story, or at least a theme from the Genesis story, The Loss of Innocence, that we see with the fall in the garden narrative is when early in the epic of Gilgamesh, there's a wild man by the name of Enkidu who lives in harmony with nature and animal kind. In an attempt to tame him, a harlot seduces him. After giving himself over to her, the animal's attitude towards Enkidu changes. They no longer view him as a brother, but instead flee and fear from him. It kind of reminds me in Genesis when Adam and Eve discover their nakedness for the first time and become ashamed. There seems to to be maybe a common theme of loss of innocence or falling out of sync with nature. Seeing as Mesopotamia is said to be the cradle of civilization, I think perhaps it's also making some kind of distinction between man's wild nature and man as a part of civilization too. But anyway, a little bit ago I mentioned the Enuma Elish, the Sumerian creation story. It's pretty wild how much the later Genesis story mirrors it. The Sumerian or Mesopotamian creation tale dates back to about 1100 BCE or before Common Era, and Genesis dates back to about in between 700 to 800 BCE. So obviously, as I said, the Mesopotamian account is older. The biggest difference between the two accounts occurs at the beginning. Obviously, in Genesis, we have one god who decides to bring creation into being. In the Mesopotamian account, it's a bit messier and more tumultuous. There's a primordial goddess named Tiamat. If you were ever into death metal or Dungeons and Dragons, you might be familiar with Tiamat. Um, She's usually associated with the primordial waters, and in some accounts, she's represented as a kind of dragon or sea serpent. But usually the story goes that she mates with another water deity by the name of Apsu, I believe, and they breed a generation of younger gods. The gods end up warring against her. The god Marduk in particular, I believe, slays her and her divided body is used to create the heavens and the earth, obviously far different from the Genesis account of creation. But after that, there's a blow-by-blow account of the order in which things are created. And I found a split-column comparison of the Genesis account. Well, obviously, there's two different accounts of creation in Genesis, But generally speaking, the Genesis account seems to mirror the older Mesopotamian account. And the split column list I found compares them side by side. I already mentioned the chaotic beginning found in the Mesopotamian account. And the um, comparative list compares that with day one in Genesis, where divine spirit creates cosmic matter and exists independently, co-eternally. This is according to the educational site where I found the um, list. Kind of just sounds like fancy theological or philosophical gobbledygook for saying God created the heavens and the earth and said, let there be light. In both accounts, there's the creation of light, then the creation of the firmament, followed by the creation of dry land, followed by the creation of luminaries, by which they probably mean heavenly bodies, uh, the creation of animals and man. And then on the seventh day, supposedly in the Mesopotamian account, the gods rest and celebrate. In the Judeo-Christian version, God rests and sanctifies the seventh day. So that might be an oversimplification of things, but I think you get my point. I'm trying to point out once again that the biblical account found in Genesis is not only contradictory at times, but also seems to have its roots in earlier Mesopotamian tradition. And as I kind of alluded to earlier, there's two different accounts of creation in Genesis, and I believe they differ on the exact order in which things were created. In one account, animals are made before man, and in the second count, I believe, man is made first, followed by the creation of animals. And I've talked a lot on the show about the phenomenon of doublets, and that's the term used by biblical scholars for occurrences in the Bible, when you have dual accounts of the same event, and the accounts differ. And just like I mentioned, there's two accounts of creation. Kind of awkwardly, one follows right on the heels of the other one. And then there's the same thing with the flood account. There's two different accounts of the flood narrative um, and the number of animals that are to be brought aboard the ark differ. And this is usually attributed by scholars to the fact that there are probably different authors in different parts of the ancient Jewish world um, with their own accounts of biblical tales. And sometimes those authors are symbolized with a, a simple initial, such as D for Deuteronomist or P for Priest. And I believe sometimes the initial represent the name by which God is referred to in that region where the version of the tale was written, or the name by which God is referred to in the text itself, such as J or Y for uh, Jehovah or Yahweh, I believe, or E for Elohim, basically something to that effect. And this approach to analyzing authorship is known as the documentary hypothesis, I believe. And hopefully I'm not boring you with all this or sound like I'm going on like a windbag. Uh, But my point is, once again, that the Bible isn't some perfect divine text that drifted down from heaven written by God himself. It's a man-made anthology. Okay, so I think that just about wraps up everything I had to say about uh, ancient Mesopotamia and biblical authorship and whatnot. And you might wonder why sometimes I go back and forth between using the term or term Sumerian or Mesopotamian. Um, Mesopotamia is just a blanket description for that region of the ancient Middle East where we have the cradle of civilization, the land between the Tigris and the Euphrates. We had the Sumerian civilization, the Assyrians, the Akkadians, the Babylonians. A lot of those cultures or civilizations drew from the older ones and shared basically the same mythos, or at least borrowed elements. That's why sometimes you'll hear the Epic of Gilgamesh described as the Mesopotamian Epic of Gilgamesh or the Sumerian Epic of Gilgamesh, or you'll hear it described as an Epic from Babylonian mythology. All basically true for the most part. It's funny. I've noticed this trend. I don't know if it's a PC thing or what, but when I was growing up, I would hear it referred to as Mesopotamian mythology or the myths of ancient Egypt as Egyptian mythology. But I noticed recently, uh, when I was double-checking myself doing my homework for the show, I noticed that it was repeatedly referred to as ancient Mesopotamian religion. It reminds me of when I was going back to school for design, and I took an elective that was right up my alley. It was a course that covered civilization from the agricultural revolution all the way up to the Renaissance. And I wrote a couple of papers that had to do with Egyptian mythology or the religious practices of the ancient Egyptians which I've long had a reverence um, for. I remember when I would refer to it as Egyptian mythology, uh, my professor at the time would kind of wince, like he was hesitating to correct me, but I had done something wrong. And he would say, how about we call it ancient Egyptian religion, okay? And I think, really? I still have books at home lining my shelves that say Egyptian mythology. I'm kind of thinking, am I going to offend someone? Are there still people walking around wearing pharaonic headscarves and worshipping Osiris? Um, As much as I absolutely love ancient Egyptian mythology and have a reverence for the culture, it still seems a little sensitive to me. But anyway, I've been talking about ancient stuff for far too long. So why don't I move it up from ancient Mesopotamia and Egypt up to the modern day and finally cover some news stories? Okay, the first one's a pretty fun story. I never thought I'd be covering Katy Perry on this podcast, but apparently she's come under fire from accusations that her latest video for the song Dark Horse contains anti-Muslim imagery. There's a character in the video, and I've seen the video, and I can never get that time I wasted back. Anyway, uh, there's a character in the video who's seen wearing a pendant with the name Allah, obviously God in Arabic, inscribed on it. And the character wearing the Allah pendant is zapped and consequently disintegrated by Katy Perry. Um, So people are getting all up in arms about this, uh, particularly Muslims, I suppose, understandably. But I'll read a bit from an online Time Magazine article just to reiterate. The Egyptian-themed clip features Perry as Cleopatra, sitting on a throne as suitors try to woo her. And it's been applauded by Egyptologists for its historical accuracy. Yet it's not... Accusations of cultural appropriation that are plaguing Perry in the wake of the video's February 20th release, but charges of blasphemy. An online petition launched on Change.org is demanding that YouTube remove the video because it shows one of Perry's suitors wearing a pendant that is inscribed with Allah, an Arabic script. More problematic still, Katy Perry is then seen burning the suitor and his pendant. What blew my mind about that article is the fact that they say the video's been applauded by Egyptologists for its historical accuracy. I hope they were being sarcastic. The Egyptian servants or attendants in the video are wearing high-top sneakers and Katy Perry's seen eating a bowl of Flaming Hot Cheetos. Plus, the guy's wearing an amulet with Arabic on it. At the time, there wouldn't have been any Arabs in Egypt. Uh... (laughs) It's funny, I said I wasn't going to talk about ancient stuff anymore in this episode, but it's not my fault that Katy Perry's video supposedly takes place in a bastardized version of ancient Egypt. It's funny, though, all kidding aside, as someone with a love of history, uh, what really bothered me way more than the whole thing with the Allah pendant was the historical inaccuracy. I know that's probably not what they were going for. They weren't going for historical accuracy. They probably just wanted a colorful, fun video. But someone with a love of ancient Egyptian culture and ancient Egyptian mythology, it all just kind of makes my stomach turn to see it made a mockery of. But I know, I know, um, probably taking it way too seriously. I guess it wasn't a total waste because, even though Katy Perry annoys me, she's not completely bad on the eyes. Although every time I start to find myself attracted to her I remember this interview with Russell Brand from back when they were still together and he went on about how bad her gas was Uh, I know we all do it but not the first thing you want to associate with someone am I being piggish probably I apologize but anyway this whole thing um, reminded me of something I'd forgotten that Katy Perry was a Christian rock singer before uh, she really made it big Then she did the um, I Kissed the Girl video, and the whole Christian uh, pop singer thing pretty much went out the window. As far as the whole Allah pendant thing goes, obviously I'm not really a religious guy, to say the least. I'm hosting a show that is geared mostly towards atheists and agnostics. But you're all invited to the show, for it is, as the tagline goes, a show for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. I guess I could see why Muslims would obviously find it disrespectful. And I think it bothers me because it seems ignorant. Like it probably wasn't intentional as cheeky as this sounds. Um, I think if you're going to insult religion, you should at least do it intentionally uh, or knowingly. I think it was Cenk from the Young Turks who made a good point that if people are so confident in their religious convictions, they probably wouldn't get so easily upset by acts of disrespect from others towards their religion because you could just console yourself by saying, hey, I know the truth. I know who the real God is. I know where I'm going when I die. Kind of makes you wonder. It goes to my theory. I think everyone doubts to some degree, even people who claim to be ardent believers. And this could take me on a whole tangent about the difference between faith and belief. On the one hand, religious people sometimes say, well, it's a matter of faith. And we don't know with 100% certainty, but we choose to believe. And somehow they're noble for taking that leap of faith. When I've often argued the point that I don't personally think that faith is necessarily inherently noble. I think that searching for the actual truth is. But food for thought anyway. Now, onto to the story I mentioned earlier. As I said, listener of the show Brian Burns actually gave me the idea to cover the story via the Weekend Out Facebook page. And I'll actually read from the article he sent me now. Uh, it has to do with possession. Spooky. Iowa priests chosen to become exorcist. The Reverend David Fleming is one of 50 priests who will undergo training. And the article is written by Sharon Jackson. What is the rite of exorcism? The ground rules for an exorcism are laid out in the De Exorcismus at Seplicationibus. Quibustum. Quibustum. <laughs> Hope I'm not butchering the Latin too much or of exorcisms and certain supplications, a 1614 manual updated by the Vatican in 1998. The ritual must be carried out by a priest on permission of the bishop. The priest should have recently gone to confession and be as free from sin as possible. One or more assistants are also involved in the process. The subject must be conscious and may be restrained. The priest sprinkles the subject, himself and any witnesses, with holy water, and calls upon a lengthy list of angels and saints. The priest then makes the sign of the cross and recites the following prayer among others. Depart then, transgressor. Depart, seducer, full of lies and cunning, foe of virtue. Prosecutor of the innocent. Give place, abominable creature. Give way, you monster. Give way to Christ in whom you found none of your works." For he has already stripped you of your powers and laid waste your kingdom, or laid waste your kingdom, bound you prisoner and plundered your weapons. He has cast you forth into the outer darkness, where everlasting ruin awaits you and your abettors. Wow, does that mean I just performed an exorcism on the show? Uh, Back to the article. If the ritual does not work, it may need to be repeated daily wash, rinse, repeat, I suppose, source of exorcisms and certain supplications. And here I continue. There's a new exorcist in town. Four decades after the profession gained popular prominence in the gory horror flick The Exorcist, the Catholic Church is training a new legion of demon-fighting priests. The Reverend David Fleming of St. Pius Tenth Catholic Church in Urbandale is one of the 50 U.S. priests recently chosen to train in the rite of exorcism. Fleming was named the official exorcist of the Diocese of Des Moines. It is the church's first effort in the United States to coordinate a comprehensive and systematic formation process for this particular ministry, Fleming told the Catholic Mirror, Des Moines Diocesan newspaper. Diocesan? Is that the uh, proper pronunciation? Contacted Saturday, Fleming declined to be interviewed by the Des Moines Register. In the four sessions over the next two years, Fleming will learn discernment of spirits, the study of angels and demons, and exorcism assessment procedures, among other things. The training, which is conducted through the Pope Leo the Thirteenth, I believe, Institute in Milwaukee, will take place in a seminary in Illinois. It is a big moment for exorcists. Diocese in Italy and Spain are also increasing their ranks because of an unprecedented rise in demonic possession. Madrid Archbishop Antonio Maria Rucco said last year after nominating eight priests to undergo training to rid people of their demons. Church leaders attribute the rise of possession to people who are dabbling in the occult, practicing witchcraft, visiting a psychic, even playing with a Ouija board. Diabolical possessions are on the increase as a result of people subscribing to occultism, the Reverend Francesco Bomonte, the president of the International Association for Exorcists, told Italian newspaper La Repubblica in December. Sometimes a demonic grip comes to people through no fault of their own, Fleming told the Catholic Mirror. Trauma, addiction, and emotional problems are among the causes, he said. Though Fleming has not yet performed an exorcism, he has helped people rid themselves of demonic influences, such such as an obsession or an infestation of demonic activity in their home, he said. A full demonic takeover, church leaders say, is rare. It seemed like when Brian sent me the link, he was a bit surprised by the story, but having been raised Catholic, I can tell you, no, I'm not surprised. I think I've talked about it on the show before that as a kid, I was warned against the dangers of things like Ouija boards, tarot cards, anything that could possibly create an opening for demonic infestation or demonic activity. I think I may have told this story on the show before, but when I was really young, probably elementary school age... um, in Sunday school, we had a young female teacher, although she probably seemed old to me at the time. She was probably only in her 20s or 30s, and she scared the crap out of me and I imagined the other kids by telling us how one time around the holidays, she was using a Ouija board with some friends and supposedly made contact with some kind of demonic entity, and the Ouija board proceeded to fly around the room and knock over a Christmas tree. It should go without saying that I don't believe the story was true. Um, I don't know if she was necessarily lying. She was probably rather allowing herself to indulge in the willing suspension of disbelief, so to speak. Whenever I think of that story, I still get um, kind of indignant for the uh, child that I was and for the other kids involved. If she wants to believe in that stuff, that's fine. But it seems kind of irresponsible to drag a bunch of young, impressionable kids into your own Disturbed little fantasy. Um, Some of you out there might be of the more superstitious variety and you might be asking, well, how do you know that the story wasn't true? Well, the way I'd put it is that it seems to defy logic and reason and science. In all my days, I've never seen an inanimate object take off of its own volition, maybe with the exception of something like a ball leaving the hand via kinetic energy or a leaf being blown on the wind. But in that case, it's not moving of its own volition. It's being moved by scientifically proven forces. Yeah, I suppose anything's possible. But my guess, based on what we know about the natural world and um, what we know of scientific law in my own lifetime of observation and experience, is that No, most likely the Ouija board didn't take off on its own and fly around the room, and most likely they weren't in contact with some demonic entity. I just remembered that the article uh, I just read mentions the Exorcist, and it's funny, uh, you guys have probably heard me talk on the show about how I've been skeptical and wrestled with doubt regarding things like the existence of God and afterlife since a relatively young age. Nevertheless, though, I still had nightmares about The Exorcist up until around the time I was 27. Uh, I think I was still in elementary school And they were playing The Exorcist on TV. And this kind of paints a weird tableau, but uh, my whole family was sitting around watching The Exorcist together. And when the really shocking demonic possession scenes, I almost said the real head-turning scenes, no pun intended, uh, kicked in, my father would look at me with this mischievous grin, and he could tell I was scared shitless. I was too scared to get up and leave the room, I think even too scared to close my eyes. I think I was basically in shock. So even though uh, I've been a skeptic or a doubter since an early age, The Exorcist really did a number on me. I would say probably at least three times a year, like I set up until my late 20s, about the time I was 27, uh, roughly, I would have nightmares about The Exorcist. I would go to bed at night and used to kind of hope against hope that I wouldn't see Linda Blair's possessed face in my dreams. Uh I used to have to do the same thing regarding sharks and plesiosaurs, too. Uh, But eventually, uh, I just stopped caring. Now I'm just glad to get a decent night's sleep so I can worry about life's real horrors, like having to wake up to go to work every day and pay bills, etc. When I entitled this episode News Stories, I wasn't kidding. Here's another one. This one concerns a high-ranking general, now retired, I think, by the name of Jerry Boykin. He's made the news recently for some rather controversial statements he's made. Some of the things he said date back a while. Um, He's devoutly religious, to say the least. And he's been known to give sermons or talks regarding his militant view of the Christian Messiah. But I'll play a clip so you can hear him in his own words
1: the lord is a warrior the lord is his name and in revelation 19 it says when he comes back he's coming back as what a warrior a mighty warrior leading a mighty army riding a white horse with a blood-stained white robe and i don't know about the theologians and i was at dallas theological seminary yesterday and i said i'm not gonna argue theology with you folks but i believe that blood on on that robe Is the blood of his enemies. Because he's coming back as a warrior. Carrying a sword. And I believe now. I've checked this out. I believe that sword he'll be carrying. When he comes back is an (laughs) AR-15. Where did the second amendment come from? I asked my students this. I asked uh, men's groups. I said where did the second amendment come from? From the founding fathers. It's in the constitution. Well yeah I know that. But where did the whole concept come from? It came from Jesus. When he said to his disciples. Now, if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. I know, everybody says, well, that was a metaphor. It was not a metaphor. He was saying, in building my kingdom, you're going to have to fight at times. You won't build my kingdom with the sword, but you're going to have to defend yourself. And that was the beginning of the Second Amendment. That's where the whole thing came from. I can't prove that historically, and David will counsel me when this is over, but I know that's where it came from. (laughs) And it And the sword today is the AR-15, so if you don't have one, you go get one. You're supposed to have one. It's biblical.
0: So that's a little scary, right? Jesus as a warrior in a blood-soaked robe with an AR-15, definitely a little different from the image of Jesus, meek and mild, holding a lamb and preaching about social justice. But you know, as crazy and bloodthirsty as this guy kind of sounds, there is some militant language and imagery in the New Testament. But that really kind of lurid and violent imagery regarding Christ's return is to be found specifically in the book of Revelation. And I wonder if the general knows that Revelation almost didn't make it into the New Testament. Some people, even in its day, thought that its tone might be too dark and violent in contrast with the general tone of Christianity. One theory I've heard is that it made it into the Bible, at least in part, because of a case of mistaken authorship. People thought it was written by the Apostle John, but it was actually written by another John in exile by the name of John of Patmos. There's other moments in the New Testament when Jesus utilizes militant imagery, like when he says, "'I come not to bring peace but a sword.'" or if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. Uh, Many people argue that these are simply metaphors, while others, like um, Reza Aslan, suggest that Jesus may have actually been more politically radical than most think, and may have even been, a, um, as weird as it sounds, a freedom fighter of sorts. Of course, there's the famous quote about turning the other cheek, which seems to endorse pacifism. But I once heard someone suggest that even that might be interpreted as a show of defiance, not turning the other cheek as a show of nonviolence, but as if challenging the person to strike the other cheek as well. But on the other hand, there's the scene of Jesus' arrest where Peter slices off the heir of the high priest's servant, and Jesus heals it. The story of Jesus and Matthew, where he overturns the tables of the money changers in the temple, uh, that definitely seems a bit rebellious. But who knows? We're dealing with different books written for different communities, uh, which were probably never meant to be taken as journalistic accounts. In fairness, when I was a kid, I instinctively took Jesus' statement about coming not to bring peace but a sword— as a figurative way of saying that his message or teachings would be seen as controversial or dis- or divisive. But hey, I'm a non-believer. Um, yeah, So you have this high-ranking general, and uh, I-, I believe this is the same guy also said that he believed that George Bush wasn't uh, uh, elected, he was chosen by God or something like that. And I got those audio clips courtesy of the Young Turks. I say courtesy, As if they actually gave them to me, you know, I basically took a clip and dissected it and pulled the audio from it. But anyways, thanks to Young Turks, uh, my favorite online news show. Okay, one more news story. This one's been around since mid-February, so hopefully it doesn't seem uh, like it's old news. A Christian snake handler featured on the National Geographic channel. Well, the snake handler is Christian, not the snake, obviously. Uh, I probably shouldn't laugh uh, because the guy ended up dying from a snake bite. Um, But I'll read a bit from a uh, USA Today article. Pastor Jamie Coots had appeared on Snake Salvation. A Kentucky pastor who co-starred in the TV show Snake Salvation has died of a snake bite. Emergency personnel received the call Saturday night that someone at a church, full gospel tabernacle in Jesus' name, had suffered a snake bite, Middlesbrough Police Chief Jeff Sharp said in a statement. He said an ambulance crew went to the church, but the Reverend Jamie Coots had left. The crew went to Coots' home and found him suffering from a bite to the hand. After a brief examination and discussion of the possible dangers, if the wound was not treated, treatment and transport to the hospital was refused, Sharp said. An hour later, police emergency officials and a deputy coroner returned to the home to find that Kutz had died. Sharp said once again. Coots, who was profiled on the National Geographic show featuring Pentecostal serpent-handling preachers, pleaded guilty last year to violating Tennessee's exotic animals law and agreed to surrender as snakes. Coots and the show's co-star, the Reverend Andrew Hamblin, believe in a passage from the Gospel of Mark that suggests a poisonous snake bite won't harm them if they are anointed by God's power and these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. I mean, I'm not trying to make fun too much because obviously a person lost their life here, but I think it's yet another disastrous example of the dangers of interpreting the Bible literally. As I point out just about every show, the Bible is a man-made book, an anthology of works written by human authors. The very authors themselves may not have intended all of it to be taken literally. What sense does it make to endanger your own life and the lives of others because one brief passage mentions handling snakes or serpents? It also mentions drinking deadly substances but I hope no one would decide to chug strychnine or hemlock because the Bible says you'll be safe. It's, you know, it's nuts. Um... Uh-oh, made a liar out of myself. One more news story. Just found this one, and it has to do with Ken Ham. It's, it's from the Huff Post and it's entitled, Five Things Kentucky Could Spend $73 million On Instead of a Fake Noah's Ark. Creation Museum founder Ken Ham announced Thursday that enough money had been raised to begin construction of a 510-foot replica of Noah's Ark as part of a multi-million dollar ark encounter project. The Ark Encounter will sit on 800 acres of land in will, ugh, Williamston, Kentucky, and will be developed in phases over many years, according to a press release from Ham's Answers in Genesis organization. The first phase alone will cost an estimated $73 million. The project has stalled over funding, but according to Answers in Genesis, it received the needed boost after Ham engaged in a widely viewed television debate on creationism and evolution with Bill Nye the Science Guy. In addition to more than $14.4 million in private donations, a municipal bond offering by the city of, to, uh, sorry, of Williamstown has cleared the way to start construction in May. God has burdened AIG to rebuild a full-size Noah's Ark as a sign to the world that God's word is true, and as a reminder that all men are sinners and we all need to go through the door to be saved, Ham wrote in August 2013. But perhaps God's message could be spread by means other than building a really big boat. Here are five ways Ham's 73 million might have otherwise served the people of Kentucky. Feed hungry children. According to MAP, the meal gap 2013, one in four children in Kentucky do not know how they will receive their next meal. Donate to cancer research, prevention, or patient support. Kentucky has the highest cancer death rate in the country, 227 per 100,000 people. Invest in broke schools. Years of education cuts have made Kentucky the 14th worst state in school funding. Save abuse animals. Last year, for the seventh consecutive year, Kentucky was ranked the worst state for animal protection laws. Combat the crippling heroin problem. Well, you get the point. Well, I think the article kind of speaks for itself. Even if you are a biblical literalist, I think there's better ways to spend millions than on trying to build an ark. I wonder what the Jesus of the New Testament, who preached about social justice, helping the poor, and about a rich man trying to get into the kingdom of heaven, being harder than a camel passing through the eye of a needle, would think about the use of the money. Food for thought. And with that being said, I'm going to call this episode a wrap. As always, you can like the show on Facebook. You can follow the show on Twitter. You can visit the Week in Doubt YouTube channel. You can review or subscribe through iTunes. You can check out the official Weekend Out Podbean page, where you can dig through the archives or view the latest episodes. And also, while you're there, if you feel generous, you can donate to the show's upkeep. Um, I put a good deal of time and effort into the show every week. Then there's the cost of uh, hosting, etc., won't try to guilt you guys too much. Uh, You can give as little as 99 cents to as much uh, as you want or not at all. It's uh, totally up to you guys. But if you want to do that, you can use the PayPal widget on the Weekend Out Podbean page. All right. And with that being said, as always, thanks for listening and until next week.